From Selma, Alabama, would you please welcome storyteller Miss Catherine Tucker Windham. I can't believe I'm 92, and but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening, and it's a rare thing these days. Listening, listening to the human voice, listening to one person talking to another person, listening. We have forgotten how to listen, how to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. Daddy said, listen, God gave you two ears and one mouth, and he expected you to use them in that proportion. (laughs) And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. And laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh, laugh at ourselves, laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says, but we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people, and you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving, loving, that God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, and now is the time to do it. Tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with I love you. Thanks to Catherine Tucker Windham speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 92 years old about the importance of stories. I am Amy Antonucci and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Radio. Coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio, 909 Islington Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. True Tales Radio is a place for local people to share their own true stories with our listeners and audience and to come be a part of this local independent community radio station that we are so lucky to have here in the seacoast of New Hampshire. Tonight we have six storytellers on two different themes because we had to cancel December's show. So we'll have three on surprise and three on seeing the light. Our underwriters for tonight's program are Jan Hansen. Yay, Jan, there he is. Who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station in the Seacoast, and Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups on True Tales Radio and is curious to know, hey, what's your story? So here's how tonight's show will progress. Each of our six storytellers will be introduced to you by Pat, and then we'll share a true story from their lives. Everyone has up to 10 minutes for their telling. We don't have a rating, a rating system. There's no voting or judgment or grading. This is just plain, good, fun storytelling. So um, we're really glad to have you here tonight for our first program of 2016, and here is MC Pat Spaulding to introduce our first teller to you. Thanks, Amy. Hey, this is a great turnout for the beginning of the year. We have like a full house, woohoo! Yeah, we had to add extra chairs, which is why we don't have very, very many chairs to start with. It feels so great to add extra chairs. We're gonna start out with David Frenner. He is a retired Unitarian Universalist minister, and he and his wife, Lisa Rodervik, an acupuncturist, founded Gentle Currents Wellness Center in Greenland, New Hampshire. David is co-chair with Susan Kaufman of the Portsmouth Poet Laureate Program. He can recite Dylan Thomas's entire prose poem, A Child's Christmas in Wales, without notes. (laughs) Indeed. Tonight, In keeping with last December's theme of seeing the light, David will treat us to his own childhood story titled, How I Almost Crashed Christmas. 
Come on up, David. Thank you, Pat. <clears throat> Actually, I've retitled my story. It's called Why I Didn't See the Light and How. Um, so this story was originally designed for December's uh, True Tales radio show, uh, whose theme was Seeing the Light, although mine was focusing on the opposite, um, why we didn't see, I didn't see the light on purpose, although it also has a surprise in it, so it sort of fits with uh, this month's theme as well. When I was eight years old, I crashed Christmas. It wasn't the end of the world, but it felt like it to me. I was entirely distraught, and the worst part of it was that it happened with the very best of intentions. I grew up in a town of Great Neck on the north shore of Long Island. Great Neck, for those of you who are uh, readers of The Great Gatsby, was the uh, model town for the fictional town of West Egg. And while there were and probably still are Gatsby-style mansions in Great Neck, my family lived in a much more modest part of town. We lived on a small street in a small two-story bungalow uh, with uh, light gray shingles and a brown picket fence on a small corner lot. My father was of German extraction, which is relevant to this story because, well, what you've mostly heard about German personality is largely true. <laughs> <laughs> We are rational, uh, <clears throat> paint by the numbers, color inside the lines kind of people. Uh, we, we really are. And <clears throat> uh, when I was um, in my rebellious teenage years, I used to say to my buddies, you know, my dad, he had to make a list before he would go to the bathroom. <laughs> but when I was growing up, when I was much younger, I was raised to be a good child and to always do the right thing. The problem is that it's not always evident what exactly the right thing is to do. At Christmas time, my brother and I would hang up our stockings with care, actually with exacting care. <laughs> My father would measure exactly a third of the way from the left and from the right end of the mantle to set up the hooks for the stockings. This had the double effect of being an elegant, uh, balanced, and proportional appearance, and it allowed Santa Claus to come down the chimney, shoot through the stockings without getting snagged. So it was a good deal all the way around. <clears throat> and in our house, we had a special arrangement with Santa Claus. <clears throat> Um, we, my brother and I would hang up our stockings, he'd hang his up on the left hook, and I would hang mine up on the right, and then we'd go up and go to bed and go to sleep. And when Santa Claus came, he would fill the stockings, and then by special stockings, and then by special arrangement, he would bring them up to each of our rooms and set them at the foot of the bed. <laughs> this had a very practical purpose. When my brother and I woke up at the crack of dawn, there would be things in the stockings for us to play with, so that my parents, who had been up most of the night trying to get tab A into slot B and wrap the presents and put them on the tree so that they'd have a chance to sleep in. So that was the deal with Santa Claus. And the whole idea was that in the morning, um, we'd all wake up. My parents would finally be refreshed. We'd go downstairs together. The tree would be all lit with the colorful presents underneath them. It was a really beautiful, magical time. And that particular Christmas, what I really wanted, what I wanted most in all the world, was a pair of stilts. Now, this creates an obvious problem for Santa Claus. How is he going to get the stilts down the chimney? And I <clears throat> realized that <laughs> that wasn't my problem. That was his problem. <laughs> Santa Claus was magical, so it wasn't really any problem. So... <clears throat> Christmas morning, I woke up prompt and early, looked down at the foot of my bed, no stocking. 
tiptoed over to my brother's room, peeked in his door, looked at the foot of his bed. No stocking. Something had gone wrong. Had Santa forgot the arrangement? <laughs> had he been too busy? But something had gone wrong. There was a problem that had to be solved. <clears throat> I couldn't wake up my parents. That was absolutely forbidden. And I couldn't very well go downstairs where I imagined the stockings still were and, and grab them and bring them back because then I would see everything laid out and that would ruin the surprise and the surprise was the whole point. And at some level I understood that my brother and I couldn't manage without the stockings because pretty soon we'd wind up in a fight and then my parents would wake up and everybody would be unhappy. So I put on my uh, eight-year-old's um, thinking cap to try to come up with some kind of solution that would solve the problem. And I came up with the perfect solution. I would go downstairs with my eyes closed and feel my way downstairs and into and across the living room to where I figured those stockings were still probably hanging, reach up, grab them, turn around, work my way back to the stairs and up, and then I would give my brother his stocking and take mine to my room, and we'd play with our toys in the stockings until my parents woke up, and the problem was solved. So this is a great idea. So, <clears throat> so I set out. I went to the top of the stairs, closed my eyes, and started to make my way down. The stairs weren't so bad. They were pretty easy. I got to the bottom of the stairs, okay, turned left, and started to work my way into and across the living room floor, I didn't manage to bump into any lamps or tables that were all still up, and I was making pretty good progress, I thought. There was just one problem. It turned out to be a huge problem. Right in the middle of the mantle, halfway between my brother's stocking and mine, was standing a pair of seven-foot-tall stilts, <laughs> and I crashed right into them. <clears throat> the stilts went off to the left, and they knocked into the tree. The tree started to tilt over. The lights came loose from the branches. The Christmas balls made of glass crashed to the ground. Everybody in the household woke up. My parents came rushing down and were screaming, and what's going on, and what's the meaning of this? Meaning of this? <clears throat> there was a lot of commotion and a lot of set. <clears throat> and I, by now, had my eyes wide open. I was crying like crazy. And I was clear, I had now painted well outside of the lines. <laughs> and I was crying. And I was trying to explain to my parents through deep sobbing and kind of uh, chest gulping breaths of air, Santa forgot to bring the stockings up and I came down to get them but with my eyes closed so I wouldn't ruin the surprise and I bumped into the stilts and they crashed into the tree and the glass broke. And I'm so sorry. <clears throat> and I just continued to cry. I don't actually remember the specifics of what my parents said or did. Probably a function of memory loss that comes through trauma. <laughs> but I do remember that I was filled with feelings of fear and fright and failure. I was just utterly distressed. My parents, I guess, came through because I didn't get punished. Nothing bad happened to me. Although I have come to think that when they were out of earshot, realized that the house was not going to burn down and understood what it was I was trying to do, they, they probably had a pretty good laugh at my expense. <laughs> <clears throat> but in the end, my mother and father went to work and started to salvage Christmas. The tree hadn't fell, fallen all the way over because it was in a corner of the room, so it really had just sort of listed to port. And my father managed to get it jacked back up. My mother took a dustpan and brush and cleaned up the broken glass Christmas balls, and the lights were put up back on the tree. The presents were reassembled, more or less, under the tree. And we sat down and had breakfast and then opened our gifts. <clears throat> but even though I didn't manage to burn the house down, that anxious, deep-sobbing, air-gulping feeling 
of having caused a catastrophe, that feeling stayed with me for a long, long time. Indeed, it's a feeling I never forgot. The coda to this story is that my parents didn't take away the stilts. They let me keep them and use them as long as I learned to use them responsibly, which I did that summer on my block. I was the best stilt walker around. Okay, I was the only stilt walker around. But still, I learned how to use them. I used them well. And they were great stilts, and I was pretty good on them. But I'll never forget how I came to have them. That holiday season, when I was eight and didn't burn the house down, but was trying to be a very good boy doing the exact right thing by, on purpose, not seeing the light. <laughs> Thanks, David. That was a very good story. Uh, feel the fear and do it anyways, because you did it. <laughs> Next up, we have Kathy Boss. She teaches English, creative writing, and yoga at High Mowing School in Wilton. She is the former director of the New Hampshire Writers Project and a member of New Hampshire Poetry Out Loud Advisory Board. For 13 years, Kathy lived and raised her three sons on the seacoast. She and her boys still come back often to enjoy Portsmouth's rich cultural life, of which we are a part, and the dear friends they made in their years here. Tonight, she will tell us her story of surprise which I'm not going to um, screw up this title because it's just one word. I think I've got it right. Titled, Summit. Come on up, Kathy. Hi. This is the story of breaking and being born. About a year before I broke my ankle on the top of Mount Shakurawa, I started a gratitude journal, writing down five gratitudes every night. And a few months before that, I had started writing a morning pages every morning, so three pages every morning. These pages grew out of a dark period in my life where I had moved from a job as a director of a department, managing a group of people, and constantly, constantly trying to reach benchmarks and prove myself and strive and get up every morning and be a good boss and be a good person and be a good mother. And I was exhausted. And so I kind of broke and I said I needed to do something different and I moved into a job as a teacher and a librarian and a tutor. But it took a while because I was still addicted to that sort of benchmark thing. You know, I, I, it was hard for me to let go of, oh, I got to reach that next summit, that next thing, and then you have another one to prove and another one to prove. So I kept keeping, I started keeping these journals. And what I didn't realize at the time was that those journals were the beginning of a gestation period for me, of a transformation, a year of transformation. And that was 2014 when I started keeping them. And in September of 2014, I wrote in one of them, there is some part of me, and I'm going to read this, there is some part of me that longs for a great gesture of pain that will birth a great outpouring of love and healing to be hospitalized and visibly ill, where we'll get, get well flowers and visits and well wishes and sympathy will be freely poured upon me. I want people to see the depth of my pain, to see me, to see how much I've triumphed over and how much it still takes to get through a day with a smile and willing hands. I want a breather, an excused absence. I want someone to say, it's okay. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to help you get through this. You are wonderful. You are important. You are a gift. And we are going to give you the space you need to heal. 
And a year later, I was climbing up Mount Chikurua with a friend of mine. And we came up the mountain, our big heavy packs on our backs, went to see the beautiful Champney Falls, heard about the curse, which I didn't know until we started climbing up the mountain, thank you very much, heard about the curse of Mount Chikurua. Her two dogs paddling out in front of us. We climbed all the way up all these wonderful switchbacks. It was a beautiful October day, October 19th, last October. Came up the first summit, and me, the striver, was like, yeah, we did it. I proved myself. And I said, at least that's not the summit. Ha, ha, ha. And actually, Mount Chikora has two summits for any of you who've ever hiked it. So you hike up one, you look across this valley, and there's another summit. So I was like, okay. So we went down, and we climbed up the second summit, rested there for a while, and then came back down and paused for a while while her pup, Boris, found what we called a poopsicle, frozen human feces in the little valley between the two peaks. Came up the second peak, back down around so that we were now just at the bottom of both the peaks, still on the bald top of the mountain. I put my foot on sort of an innocuous seeming rock, and my wish came true. <laughs> I slipped, my right foot slipped very, very quickly, caught myself with my left foot, but my right foot caught and my leg kept going. My right foot ended up on the side of my leg, dislocated, broken fibula, fibula and broken tibia, which we didn't know at that time. I just, it was a, it was a remarkably undramatic moment. I just, it was like slip, I was like this. I looked down, the foot was like here, which is not where it's supposed to be. And I said, stop. <laughs> This doesn't look right. I don't think this is good. And my friend came over to me, and she looked down at my foot. And of course, she's like, you know, sit down. I sat down. She looked. She wanted to touch my foot. I said, don't touch my foot. I can't. It hurts. And I said, still wanting to strive. So what do we do now? Thinking, what? I'm going to walk down the mountain? <laughs> my foot's dangling, literally, from the bottom of my leg. And I'm thinking, I'm going to walk down the mountain. We ended up calling 911, and it took three hours for the first paramedics to come up the mountain. It was 2 o'clock when I broke my foot, 2.30 when we called the paramedics, so it was 5.30 when the first responders got there. Those three hours are, were some of the most sublime moments in my entire life. It was as if all of my future selves, all of my past selves, all time just folded into that moment. And that the mountain and Mount Washington, standing over there with her white skirts, was like a midwife to me. And Mount Chikurua was like this womb that held me beneath the blue sky and the gentle susurrence of the winds and my friend's voice trying to keep me from going into shock. Just talking, doing weird belly dancing things and shadow puppetry for me. You know, it just all folded in and this pain pinned me and I had no choice but to be there. How many times in our lives do we have that moment when we don't have to do anything? We have to completely surrender. We have no choice. Three hours later, well, the only thing I worried about was Boris licking me, having just eaten the poopsicle, right? <laughs> I was like, just get the dog away from me. That was the only thing that worried me. But then the first responders came up and time shifted back. So time started up again for a while. They lit a fire. They gave me uh, painkillers in my wrist. They splinted my foot but didn't relocate it. And an hour later, about 20 young people, not much older than my own children, came up the mountain with little he headlamps and much enthusiasm, volunteers from a training program for wilderness EMTs. I was their first carryout. Yay! <laughs> so they strapped me onto a gurney. You, so when you're on the gurney, you're cross-armed, you're strapped down with what are like seat belts. You can't move at all. They split my foot up. I couldn't move. I was completely at the mercy of these children. You know, they were 20-somethings, all of them. And their names were like Ariel and Dan, and there was one called Butternut. <laughs> really? I'm serious. So these were my midwives, right? <laughs> So they carried me down what I've now come to think of as kind of like a birth canal of that mountain. 
You know, it was four hours of being squeezed, of being helpless, being belayed, believe it or not, so scraped down the mountain, of being jostled and just squeezed by this light and hearing all these noises and sometimes being a person for them, sometimes not being a person for them. You know, just a body. We came down four hours later and into the big bright light of the ambulance. And I was whisked away to the hospital and friends, my children came, my son came up with his friend. I had surgery the next day. Thought that the yellow light was saying, hello, 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 the little morphine <laughs> light. So that was a little weird. But I got out of the hospital three days later and came home to really have my wish come true in that I was showered with that kind of love. I was showered with that kind of, um, it's okay, take a breather. We love you for exactly who you are kind of love. And all of the striving that I'd been working to exercise from me with that journaling, with the gratitudes, it just slipped away from me. And I started realizing that you don't have to strive every day. You don't have anything to prove, right? And I got reborn as this new person. But the surprise is that you get reborn and you're a baby again, right? So I've had to learn to walk all over again. You know, I seven weeks with no weight on my foot, crutches. I had to ask people for everything. My son had to bring me meals. My 18-year-old son is bringing me meals. Friends had to drive me everywhere. I was like a child again. And I still feel like I'm a child, you know, that I'm coming into the second half of my life now and that that journal that I've kept is still there for me to keep me there. But it was like a rebirth for me being up on that mountain. And so now what I say to life is, all right, I surrender. Surprise me. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Kathy. The time is now 6, well, let's say 58. And you are listening to WSCALP 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio, broadcasting from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. This is True Tales Radio. I am your MC, Pat Spaulding, about to introduce our next storyteller, Amy Antonucci. She lives and works on a permaculture farm in Barrington, New Hampshire, is a longtime volunteer for WSCA, including for the past two years being our announcer right here on True Tales Radio. For a few years, Amy was also a caregiver to her elderly father. That provided her with a lot of storytelling material. And it taught her some valuable lessons, such as honesty is sometimes a bad policy. <laughs> Tonight, she will tell us about that in her story, How I Saw the Light and Learned to Lie to My Father. Come on up, Amy. Thanks. Uh-oh, I have to adjust the mic for myself. That's hopefully right. Okay. Last winter, my 84-year-old father was chafing against the rules of his assisted living facility. As I saw it, he was somewhere clean, with kind people looking out for him. He had decent food and all sorts of entertainment. He even had a lady friend that he was quite attached to living in the next door building. But still, at least once a day, I got a call. Amy, they got me in the prison over here. <laughs> and I just couldn't talk them out of it, no matter how hard I tried. So at the urging of the assisted living staff, I went to meet with June, the director of a nearby adult day health center. I was sure it was a futile effort. I told her, I'm glad to meet you, but there is no way my father is going to agree to go to daycare. 
she answered. Amy, you're not going to tell him it's daycare. I said, but it is, and I can't lie to my father. Well, June really thought that I could, or at least should, lie to my father. She told me that more than half of the day health center attendees thought they were there as volunteers, and that this was actually the new standard of care in um, memory loss, that you were supposed to meet people where they were rather than constantly telling them they were wrong. She shared with me the official term for this, and it is, I'll let you know, fiblet. Okay. I really struggled to wrap my mind around this. I told her, I don't know if I can do that. I, I can't, I'm not allowed to lie to my father. That's okay, she told me. That's exactly why kids send their parents to a place like this. She also handed me a green sheet of paper with the title, 10 Absolutes for Alzheimer's Caregiving, What Not to Say. And she told me, never tell your father no, and you'll be okay. This was two years after his diagnosis of dementia, and it was really the first time that I was given any direction in how to deal with my father in this new state of being. So I looked at this list and I realized it was pretty much a list of the way I talked to my father every single day in the name of being a good daughter. It included never say I told you, never say you can't, never command, and never reason with. The very first absolute though was never argue. Pretty much all I did was argue with my father. No, dad, you can't get another car. No, dad, you can't have your ATM and your visa cards back. No, dad, you cannot walk downtown by yourself. Which, now that I think of it, probably understandably, understandably confused and or infuriated him. I wasn't the only one in this struggle with him. After all, the reason I was checking out adult day health centers was that my father's assisted living facility was really struggling to handle him. He would not follow the rules, especially the ones about staying on the premises. He wanted to walk downtown, sleet, rain, snow. His refrain was, the weather doesn't bother me. And then he head off. And if they tried harder to stop him, he would only get louder. You people, you're keeping me hostage. I'm an American, I have rights, and I'm calling the police. <laughs> this meant that my father was constantly met with arguments, commands, you can't statements, all clearly marked as no-nos on my new list. So the night after I met June, I called my father, or my father called me, with his usual list of complaints, and I held tight to my green sheet. He said, Amy, they got me in prison over here. And I said, yes, you are in prison. Do you know why you're in prison? And he said, why? <laughs> and I said, because you drove your daughter insane with all your complaining. And he said, oh, Amy, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that. And I thought, maybe there's something to this. <laughs> so I moved on to the topic of the day program. I'd actually been advised to pick a simple fiblet and stick to it. But in my anxiety over this whole situation, I just could not manage to do that. I instead threw my whole bag of tricks at him. It was actually complicated enough that I ended up having to write it out and give hard copies to everyone involved with him in order to keep our story straight. I told him that there was a great program that might be able to help him get more strength in his replaced hip, but that it was really hard to get into. It was also very expensive. However, 
They were in desperate need of volunteers, and I might get them to consider him. So my father, raised during the Depression, could not resist a bargain, especially for an exclusive club. He was very comfortable with volunteering and caregiving because he had taken care of my mother, who had M MS, multiple sclerosis, for 20 years. And the one medical issue he did want help with was his hip. So he said to me, well, I guess it wouldn't hurt to check it out. So we went to visit for an hour. There was a concert first with old music. Then they had ice cream. Then they had some kind of group game going on. It definitely held his interest, but he was really still uncomfortable, I could tell. On the way back to assisted living, I tried to get him to tell me why. He was, oh, I don't know, I don't know. He finally said, Amy, it's just that there were a lot of old men there. <laughs> now, he was actually right. In his world, usually there were more women than men, but this was the opposite, so he, he was not wrong. So I thought of my new rules, and I stopped myself from reasoning with him and reminding him that he, too, was an old man. Okay? So I said, okay, yeah, Dad, you're right. It is better to be with women and avoid men. And he answered, yeah, that's what I mean. You want to be with the women. Okay. But he did still agree to try volunteering, despite the distressing number of men. The day he started the program, I was really, really nervous. I called him that night to find out how it had gone. And he said to me, Amy, it's really good these people found me. Those old men need a lot of help. <laughs> My father died this past summer, and one of my few regrets is that I didn't learn to lie to him sooner. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Jennifer Kinsey is coming up next. She lives in Stratham, New Hampshire. She is a psychotherapist who works for Seacoast Mental Health Center, predominantly with and on behalf of older adults a category into which Jen says she now belongs. <laughs> she loves being outdoors in all kinds of weather, enjoying this beautiful state of New Hampshire's mountains, lakes, and ocean. In her work life, Jennifer spends her days listening to and interacting with other people's stories. Until tonight, she has been a presentation avoidant person, always focusing on others. This will be the first time that Jennifer has ever told her own story in a public setting. It's titled, Hey, a title would wreck the surprise. <laughs> Last summer, I was alone at home. My husband had gone off for the weekend to do some fishing. And it was a, it was a weeknight. I was about to go to bed. And as soon as I put my head on the pillow, I had a distinct feeling that something had crawled into my ear. Pretty distressing sensation. And I'm sitting there in bed thinking, it feels like something's crawling in my ear, and it, it sounds like something's crawling in my ear. It sounded like a couple of little men crinkling up newspaper or tin foil. Really, really unsettling. So I'm trying to decide what to do because there's nobody's too late to go call someone or see someone and, and I got to get to sleep and get up and work the next day. So I start to think about what are, what are my options here? And, and so I think, well, either something's crawled in my ear and I need to get it out or I'm also a swimmer. And, and sometimes when I go swimming at the pool, I'll get water in my ear and it'll feel a little like what I was experiencing. And then there was this other possibility. Um, I'm a mental health professional. And when people come into the center and tell us things like they have this feeling of bugs crawling in their arms or, or hearing things or seeing things, we usually diagnose them with a psychiatric illness. 
So I didn't really think that was a possibility, but it did cross my mind. So working with the first two options, I thought, well, maybe if I get some alcohol and put it in my ear, that would maybe solve the swimmer's ear thing. Or if there's a bug in there, maybe it would kill it. Um, so I get up and I start wandering around the house looking for some rubbing alcohol, which I couldn't find, a little odd. But I did find in the back of a cupboard some Grey Goose vodka. <laughs> I thought, that's close enough. And, and so I poured a little of that in a, in a glass and I got a little um, cotton ball and I squeezed it into my ear a couple of times. My ear still felt pretty weird and there was still a lot of noise, but the noise stopped. So the alcohol definitely stopped the noise, um, which I thought was a good sign. Um, and I was able to get to sleep. And, and so about four hours of sleep later, I get up and, and get ready and go to work. And fortunately, there's a nurse where I work. Um, she's a friend of mine, Dee. And I go into Dee's office and I start to tell her this story. And again, this is a mental health center. So Dee knows I'm pretty sane, but I could see in her mind she's going, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well, let me look in your ear. So she, she looks in my ear and she says, you know, I, I really can't see anything. This is serious, so you should probably go to your doctor and get it checked out. I said, okay, I, I agree. So a little while later, I get go off to my um, local primary care office and... Um, I get into the exam room with the doctor, and I start to tell her this story, and I can tell she's doing the same thing, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, well, she says, let me, let me have a look. And so she gets out her, all her ear examining equipment and um, looks in my one ear, and it's fine, she says, that looks great. And she looks in the ear that's bothering me, and, and she's really quiet. And, and it seems like she's looking for a long time. And then she finally says, I think I see legs. <laughs> Wasn't really what I wanted to hear. But, um, so she says, let me get the nurse, and we'll flush your ear out and, and see if we can get out what's in there. So she goes and gets the nurse, and um, the nurse comes in with all her ear irrigation equipment, a basin and a syringe. And I could tell normally the doctor would have dismissed herself and gone off to the next patient. No way. She was sticking around to see what was in my ear. And so there's the nurse next to me getting ready to flush my ear. There's a doctor behind me and there's a basin kind of off to the side. And so the flushing begins and after a couple of flushes the nurse announces, oh there's the earwax. And then there's a silence and she looks in the basin and she goes, ooh. <laughs> and the doctor looks over her shoulder and goes, oh. And I look in the basin and I go, ah! And what was in the basin was a very soggy, very sanitized pantry moth. And that is my moth story. <laughs> You definitely qualify for that program, Jennifer. <laughs> we'll be looking to hear it soon. On the moth. Up next, we have Emily Spaulding. No relation to me. She spells her name with a U. Um, she went to college on a baton twirling scholarship. That's just so great. Um, Emily worked as a cable TV interviewer in New York City, where she became a general manager and met her husband, Dick correct, in New York, on Easter vacation. April in Paris. That's a little prequel to the story she will tell us tonight that harkens back to December's theme of seeing the light. Emily has recently published a memoir about growing up in the South titled Toots, and she says that her greatest pleasure is to tell and hear true tales. So let's now listen to her story, The Lights of Paris. Well, my husband and I were in our 30s, and we had two little babies, and we lived in a rent-controlled apartment in Brooklyn, and we were going to have, at last, 
a romantic getaway in the lights of Paris. All we had to do was just go to the airport and pick up our tickets. So we go to Air France, and we walk up to the counter, and I said, excuse me, but could we have our tickets? We're going to Paris, and we're the Spaldings from Brooklyn. And he said, no billet, no tickets. We can fly you in, but not out. There is a huge strike. And I said, well, how long do you think that strike will last? And he said, je ne sais pas, no billet. And I said, well, just a minute. I'm here on my romantic getaway, and I have two little babies at home, and the grandmothers are there right now taking care of them for a month, and I've got to go. Do you know how frazzled I am? I've got to get away. I mean, natural childbirth and feeding them every four hours and those dirty diapers, the cloth diapers, I have to take them to the laundromat and I have to fight to get a machine. I've got to, I don't know what I'll do if you don't give me the tickets. Well, he took two steps back. He probably thought I was going to jump over the counter. Well, that's what I was thinking about doing. He must have read my mind. So he handed me the tickets and your BA and we walked out to the plane and I think I probably strutted a little because you know I'm a southern girl and it was really good to be in charge and convincing and there was this huge plane and it said Air France across the top we were almost on our way so we walked and we get in the plane and my husband says why do you think there are only six people on this plane <laughs> and I said well, it must be off-season. It's May. And then we arrive in Paris, and we find a taxi. It was kind of hard. And we get in the taxi, and he's looking out the window, and he says, why do you think that every building is locked shut tight? And I said, it must be a holiday that we don't know about in Paris. And we drove a little farther, and we went over the Seine River into the left bank, the student section, and that's where we were staying. And this time he said, oh, why do you think there are riot policemen on every street corner? And I said, but, but perhaps Parisians are proud of their police protection. <laughs> and so we drove a little farther, and then there were students running everywhere, and they were chanting something in French that I couldn't understand. And they were pushing two on a side. And they were rocking cars back and forth, and they turned them over, and then they would laugh and cheer. And then somebody would throw a match, and they would go boom. And I noticed that they were doing this at random. There didn't seem to be any pattern. And I thought, well, what if they choose our taxi to randomly turn over and burn up? But just about then, the taxi driver turned into a residential section, and he stopped in front of a house, and it was the house where we were staying. And Dick gave him some francs. And the man, he said, vite, vite, à la maison. Well, he didn't have to tell us that. We ran as fast as we could. <laughs> and he left as fast as he could, believe me. So we were there, and we went up to the house. And I rang the bell. And Dick knocked on the door. And nobody came. So he knocked on the door, and I rang the bell at the same time. Knock, knock, knock. Nobody came. Now, do you know how many people we knew in Paris? Nobody. Not even in France or Europe, for that matter. So what were we going to do? So I saw this mail slot, so I lifted it up and I said, Hello, we're the Spaldings from Brooklyn. Let us in. And there was a clunk and a clank, and they opened the door, and there was a woman standing there, and she said, Madame, Monsieur, I didn't think you would come. And it was at that very moment that I realized that I had made a terrible mistake being so insistent in getting those tickets. And so I said, Dick, do something. <laughs> and the next morning, after croissants, he's not stupid, he went to the, he had to walk because there was no electricity, everything was shut. And he walked to the train station, the main Paris train station, to get us some tickets anywhere away from the strike. And about two hours later, he came back. 
And he said, the, the train station was closed. It was barricaded. There was nobody there. I couldn't get tickets. And he said, but I have good news. He said, you know, while I was standing there thinking, well, what are we going to do? He said, I heard this, psst, 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 over here. Where do you want to go? Germany. There are two of us. I can take you there in my van tomorrow night. But you have to pay me for the tickets right now. (laughs) Both of them. You didn't give a stranger tickets and think he's going to bother to show up? I wanted to say, you rube, but we were on a romantic getaway, so I didn't say anything, which was very hard. And so he said, so tomorrow night, the next night, we went to the train station with our suitcases. There was nobody on the street, and it smelled like burned rubber and glass and furniture everywhere. It was a long way. We had to walk because there were no taxis and no buses and no electricity. And we got there, and there was nobody there. And I wanted to say this time, you idiot. But I didn't, because this was our romantic getaway. <laughs> and it was a good thing that I hadn't said it, because about that time we heard, psst, psst, my van is over here in the shadows. And so we raced over, and there was a rusty, dirty Peugeot. And you know what? It looked beautiful. (laughs) And so we jumped on and hurtled off into the darkness. It was dark everywhere. And there were six other Americans there, and we all said hello, but we really didn't talk. I mean, what do you say at a time like that? And about two or three hours, the van stopped, screeched to a stop. It was in a clearing with just trees around and nothing else. And it was dark as dirt. And the van, the driver said, well, to Dick and me, you get out here. And I said, well, what about the others? And, well, they're going to another part of Strasbourg. And so we got out. And he said, and then run in that direction as far as you can until you see a train. And he slammed the door, and he hurtled off into the... So there we were. And I was like, this is it. We are going to be robbed, murdered, or kidnapped. And I thought... You know, I wish I had paid more attention in French class because then I could negotiate with the kidnappers much better. And so we started walking. What else was there to do? And as we were walking along, really, I was terrified. And I thought, this must be exactly what it's like when a refugee is running for the border to a different country. And you don't know if you're going to make it or not. But you're optimistic. And you have hope that it's going to turn out all right. And that is exactly the way that we felt. And just about then, Dick said, look, there are lights up ahead. They're over the trees. And we started running. And we got to a train station. And there was a train sitting there. And it had smoke coming out. It looked beautiful. But it looked like it was about ready to go. So we ran up the steps. And there was a compartment. And we just went in the first compartment. You know, it had the glass doors in the top and the wood underneath. And we sat down on the bench and said, phew. But we shouldn't have had said phew, because at that moment the doors flung open, and there was a man in a uniform, and he had boots up to his knees, and he said, billet, tickets? I said, but we, we don't have any tickets. He said, passports. So Dick reached in his pocket, and he pulled out his passport. And, of course, I reached in my pocketbook, and I finally pulled out my passport, and I said, here you are, sir. He did not smile. He looked through my passport, and he looked at me, <clears throat> he looked through my passport, and finally he clicked his heels together. He gave us the tickets. Dick gave him the francs, and he went out in the hall, and he went up forward in the train. And so very soon the train went forward, and so did Dick and I. And we hugged each other and said, we did it together. We, we're through with this. And I said, we may not have seen the bright lights of Paris, but now we're going to see the bright lights of Germany. <laughs> Germany? <laughs> Yeah, 
yeah, Germany, it'll be great. <laughs> Thanks, Emily. Our final storyteller will be John Tilly. He's born and raised, he's a born and raised Texan who now resides in Rye, New Hampshire. Following the, um, his, you know what? I left my glasses there. I'm just going to go. <laughs> I can almost do this, but not quite, even though I know him, John, pretty well. Um, following his retirement from a 30-plus year career as an attorney in Dallas, he and his wife, Wanda, were married shortly before he graduated from law school and have endured together the highs and lows and many surprises that such a career inevitably brings. They have three children, five grandchildren, and thoroughly enjoy the lifestyle that only the seacoast can provide. Not Texas. John's story of surprise is titled, Learning the Law on My Feet. <clears throat> Thank you, Pat, and greetings to family and friends in Texas, North Carolina, Ohio, and Arizona. In 1985, and not long out of law school in Houston, Texas, I was itching for some real courtroom action. I understood the role of the apprentice and had happily accompanied older attorneys to depositions and routine hearings. I had spent months and months reviewing documents and writing legal memos, but now I felt ready for more. And here came my chance. My supervising partner handed me a file. This just came in from a client. I don't know much about it. Give it a quick review and tell me your thoughts on how we should proceed in defending this lawsuit. You bet, I said, and retreated to my small office to give it my best legal analysis. After several hours re reviewing all the documents in the file, doing some rudimentary legal research, I returned to the partner's office. I think this is ripe for a summary judgment motion, I said. He frowned and shook his head. In simple terms, a summary judgment can be issued by a trial judge if there is absolutely no dispute about the facts of the case. In other words, what was done, what was said involving the transaction in dispute. And if the law squarely favors one party over the other. But I was convinced that this case satisfied those rules. Summary judgments are hard to get, the partner observed. Judges just flat don't like them. I nodded. Yeah, that, that was true. For one thing, trial judges hate to be overruled by appellate courts. By granting a summary judgment, it could be appealed and potentially overturned. Second, denial of a summary judgment was not appealable. So the judge, by denying such a motion, could not be overruled. Still frowning, the partner said, well, okay, if you think it has merit, go ahead and prepare the motion, and then I'll decide if we should actually pursue it. Feeling up to the challenge, I proceeded to the library and began the serious research to support the motion. I read, I made notes, I crafted clever legal arguments to support my position. I drafted and redrafted the motion with citations and footnotes. I tabbed and referenced the contract, the supporting documents, and the various correspondences. When finished, I had assembled a neatly typewritten motion and numerous tabbed documents which totaled about three inches thick of paper. I proudly deposited this thesis on the partner's desk and announced, I think it's a winner. <laughs> He looked dubious, but he promised to review it in the coming days. Finally, he brought it back to me and he said, you might have a chance with this. Go ahead and file it. So I marched my motion weighing a couple of pounds downtown to the courthouse, filed it, and mailed a copy to the opposing attorney. He now had 21 days to file a reply. This will make him sweat, I thought smugly. He did indeed file a timely reply and the court set the motion for hearing before the presiding judge. In those days, Houston courtrooms were ancient and small. The burgeoning city had far outgrown the old brick courthouse and the even smaller annexes where every nook and cranny 
now housed a court, judges' chambers, and court clerks. The presiding judge in this particular case had drawn the smallest, the ugliest, and the most uncomfortable courtroom in the entire county. In addition, this particular judge utilized a single docket. In other words, all motions and hearings set on a single day were all scheduled at the same time, 9 a.m. On our day, there were 25 motions set for hearing, which meant at 8.55 a.m., the courtroom was jammed with at least 50 lawyers, probably more, all waiting their turn to achieve justice for their clients. My motion was slotted at number 23 of 25. While all lawyers were expected to be there on time, the judge felt no such constraints. <laughs> While we all shuffled impatiently, jammed into the benches far inadequate for 50-plus lawyers and all our oversized briefcases, the judge was doing who knows what. But I envisioned him poring over the law books and nodding his confirmation of my arguments and briefing. <laughs> Finally, around 9.35 a.m., the bailiff announced, All rise! And we all struggled to our feet. The judge looked at the packed courtroom, glowered all around, and called the first case of 25. So I sat back, determined to learn as much as I could from the various arguments and rulings of the 22 cases in front of me. From the docket, I had surmised there were three other summary judgment motions that would come up and be heard in the course of the morning before mine. After the first summary judgment was argued, the judge promptly denied it. Hmm, I thought. I guess that guy wasn't very well prepared. A half hour later, the second such motion came up. Again denied. Third summary judgment motion. Third denial. I thought, hmm, should I be worried? But then I thought, statistically, I have an even better shot than before. Surely he's not going to deny every summary judgment motion. Finally, case number 23 was called. I strode up to the bench in my best lawyer uniform, navy blue suit, white shirt, and red tie. The judge just stared at me without acknowledgement. Then my opponent walked up to the bench, dressed in a terribly mismatched light blue plaid jacket and some hue of green trousers. Then, to my astonishment, the judge stood up leaned over the bench, and reached out to shake hands with the opposing lawyer. Morning, Brian. It's been a while. How's Elaine treating you, the judge asked. Aw, oh, judge, it has been a while, hadn't it? Ah, uh, she's treating me better, not better than I deserve, you know. How's Margaret a-doing? The judge smirked. Ha, she's fine, thanks for asking. Still mean to me every day, though. They chuckle together. Now, <laughs> this exchange, as it was happening rapidly and in real time in my presence, broke every judicial conception I had formed in law school. Judges were the brightest and the best. Judges were impartial. Judges only looked to the letter of the law. Then the judge promptly broke law school conception number two. He looked at my three-inch stack of motion papers with the sour countenance of a teenage boy who had been handed a copy of Moby Dick and told to read it. <laughs> he took his thumb and he riffed through those hundred pages of motions and exhibits and barked, What's all this about, counselor? Now, judges, in my mind, avidly read every motion presented to them in order to make a fair and accurate decision on all the important matters contained therein. But my mind swiftly and accurately deduced, my God, he hasn't read a single word of it. Well, then, up to the challenge. It was time to educate and advocate. 
I stood as erect as I could in my navy blue suit, my white shirt, my red tie, and I proceeded to tell that judge how the cow ate the cabbage. <laughs> I explained that there were no fact issues that would preclude summary judgment, and I elucidated all the law that supported the granting of such a judgment, and I moved the court so to rule. The judge turned to Brian, my opponent, and he said, Response? Brian screwed up his face, glanced at me in contempt, and crowed, Judge, there's fact issues here. The judge said, I agree, banged down his gavel and boom, denied. Rendered utterly speechless, but possessing the good judgment not to sputter that opposing counsel had argued neither fact nor law, I gathered up my worthless motion papers, stuffed them into my briefcase, and scuttled out of the courthouse with my head hanging low. My extremely amused partner caught up with me, patted me on the back, and said, That's which, that which does not kill us makes us stronger. I glanced sideways at him and muttered that I knew I wasn't dead, but I sure didn't feel very strong at the moment. Now, of course, in time, I became very grateful to that judge and his friend for that swift education on my feet in that courtroom. They taught me early on the law is not particularly lofty and it is not esoteric. The law is, in fact, a contact sport and it's played for keeps. <laughs> thanks, John. And thanks to all of tonight's great storytellers and our in-studio audience. Give yourselves a hand. Great audience. <laughs>